I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Right adjacent to that, which has direct access to the wall, you have where the tellers are. And it's always a a spatial conversation and it's sort of an interactive conversation on how that works between the customer and the employee and what makes the customer comfortable, what makes the employee comfortable. And then what type of regulation, you know, and overlap that with the regulations you need to follow. So it becomes a very, very interesting challenge to solve and solve successfully. Because again, at the end of the day, that experience is what they're going to remember about the bank. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you are listening to Spaces Podcasts. Thank you for coming back, everybody. In today's episode, I discuss banks with Eugene Kohlberg a Brooklyn-based architect with over 25 years of experience producing award-winning architecture and interiors in the United States and internationally. He previously worked at Gensler, where some of his work consisted of retail banking design, so he has a lot of insight to share in that arena. Today, as principal of Kohlberg Architecture, he has designed imaginative and environmentally sensitive projects across the residential, workplace, retail, educational, healthcare, institutional, museum, and urban planning sectors. We'll hear more from Eugene in a bit. Now, I've wanted to do an episode on banks for a while. From a young age, I've found them super fascinating. 
I remember going to the bank with my mom and I actually found it fun for some reason. I remember playing with toys in the sitting area while she waited for the teller. I'm not sure if it was the expansiveness of the space, the mini freedom that I had to play in this new territory, or the activity and buzz that came with all the moving parts of a bank. The individual people, the business clientele, the banking business itself, the employees going in and out of the vault, the security guards, the armed guards that moved money in and out of the building. I just found it all fascinating. Just in my lifetime, I've seen banks evolve quite a bit from that time when I was jumping toy action figures from couch to couch. But when you step back, its greater evolution is even more intriguing. Banks only became a thing because of the evolution of trade and the emergence of currency. Early on, humans bartered and traded goods and services, but with the development of farming, trade evolved to livestock, grains, and metals. Sumerian rulers and cities built large granaries and developed sophisticated accounting systems to assure that fair exchanges were made to farmers and especially to local authorities, which really kind of makes it the first banks. Initially, in some societies, transactions were made with tokens. These tokens were marked with an image of the item being traded to serve as a reminder that an item had exchanged hands. Around the 7th millennium BC, in Western Central Asia, societies developed a means of trade centered on that region's rich mineral deposits, extracting metals such as gold, copper, and tin. By the 3rd millennia BC, the use of gold bars with standardized weights and value was common in cities in Egypt and Mesopotamia. This is where commodity currencies came into existence, and societies around the globe began experimenting with standardized forms of currency. Fast forwarding a bit, and as currency evolved, the more tokens you had, the more important it was to store them in a safe place. Most of the wealthy people actually stored their money at temples because priests and temple workers, who were devout, honest, and always at the temple, added a sense of security. It was the Romans that formalized banking within distinct buildings, and they provided the classical style that you may picture when you think of a large bank institution. During this time, moneylenders profited, kind of like loan sharks do today, but most legitimate commerce and almost all governmental spending involved the use of an institutional bank. Things started to change a bit when Julius Caesar provided the first example of allowing bankers to confiscate land in lieu of loan payments. This was a huge power shift in the relationship of creditor and debtor because the land of a landowner was pretty much untouchable throughout most of history. After the Roman Empire crumbled, the various monarchs that reigned over Europe emphasized the strength of the banking institution. The royal powers also began to take loans to make up for hard times at the royal treasury, and it kind of opened the door to this trend of turning a blind eye to creditworthiness of big customers. Here in the US, by the late 18th century, banks struggled as an institution, and the average life for an American bank, including your money that was in that bank, was five years. And without the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, a bank robbery meant that there was no replacement for stolen money. Behind all this, Americans obviously developed a distrust for banks and bankers in general. 
So much so, the state of Texas actually outlawed bankers until 1904. Through the 19th century, the federal government and merchant banks, which were more commercial and investment type banks, worked to establish a trusted system. On the government side, they established a national bank system that had federal support through difficult times, created a uniform national currency, and imposed taxes that eventually pushed out unregulated state banks. The family-held merchant banks, which had a history and international connections, were the ones to take on most of the economic duties until the national banking system stabilized. At the time, there was no legal obligation to disclose capital reserve amounts or prove your ability to survive a loan loss, so reputation mattered. And in the middle of an industrial age, these banks' international connections, along with their long history of successful transactions, positioned them to build up their capital and corporate and political power. This was the climate that influenced bank design. By the 1900s, merchant banks were well-established, but rarely extended credit to the average person. Their customers were particularly split along class and racial lines. Their clientele centered on corporations and Wall Street. And for the national banks and the remaining state banks, establishing a trust with wealthy patrons was critical. Owners and trustees favored the classical architectural imagery, that Roman influence with large, often freestanding stone structures in the classical style that signal financial stability and integrity. However, a series of events would inspire a new era of bank design. In 1907, a collapse in shares of a copper trust set off a panic that had people rushing to pull their money out of banks and investments, causing shares to plummet. Through reputation, financial means, and influence, J.P. Morgan stepped in to stop the panic, maneuvering the credit and capital they controlled, kind of like what the Fed does today. This set in motion the creation of the Federal Reserve Bank in 1913 to ensure that no private banker would ever again wield that much power. With the Fed established and a coinciding world war, America found itself a global lender by the end of that war. But when the U.S. called in those nations' debts, it slowed down world trade and the already sluggish economy was knocked out by the stock market crash in 1929. In the aftermath, a clear line was drawn between a bank and being an investor. Financial reforms from FDR's New Deal no longer allow banks to speculate with deposits, and FDIC regulations were enacted. In addition, the rise of World War II required a massive financing operation that created companies with huge credit needs. These needs went on to spur the merging of banks, which created huge banks that spanned global markets. Simultaneously, the New Deal drove a housing boom in the U.S. that opened banking to a new customer behind the advent of deposit insurance and mortgages. Individuals needed reasonable access to credit and a new client relationship model emerge, the sit-down bank. Banks shifted their focus from a classical institutional aesthetic to a more welcoming environment that attracted customers and most importantly made them feel comfortable. There were large reception areas and fewer enclosed spaces, and furniture pieces with a more social aesthetic were introduced. Today, we still see this approach along with the continued evolution 
I'll get into that a little bit more with Eugene after this break. Hello Spaces listeners, Demetrius here. The other day I was on Instagram and I saw Michelle traveling the world again. I think she was in London this time. Now if you're a frequent traveler like her, or want to live vicariously through a frequent traveler, our new sponsor is your ticket. Travel by Design, an original podcast from Marriott Bonvoy. In this podcast, host Hamish Kilburn, editor of Hotel Designs, speaks with architects, designers, and visionaries who dive deep into their designs and highlight what connects us to the world's most extraordinary travel experiences. If you know me, you know my passion for storytelling and audio production, and this show delivers. Their episode on El Mangrove, a hotel in the mangrove jungle in Costa Rica, really immerses you in the experience of the hotel. From a secluded overwater villa in the Maldives to a trendy hotspot in downtown LA, Hamish and the team do a great job highlighting the often overlooked nuances of design, the benefits design brings to guests, and by the end of each episode, I'm sure you'll want to travel. Beyond just the great quality and storytelling, these episodes are super easy to listen to. That Costa Rica episode is actually just over 12 minutes, so it's a great one to test out the show. Check out Travel by Design. All you have to do is simply scroll down to our show notes, click the Travel by Design link, and easily listen today. All right, Eugene, uh, thank you for joining me today. Eugene, if you could start by uh, letting me, letting our listeners know a little bit about you and uh, Kohlberg Architecture. Yeah, sure. My name's Eugene Kohlberg. And I've been an architect, I think for about, I don't know, it changes every year, maybe like 25 years now. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I've been uh, I've been mostly working in New York um, since I graduated school. I went to school at Cornell University and I've worked for small offices, medium offices, super large offices. And I've had my own office for about six or seven years now. It's a generalist practice. And like one of my old mentors used to say, you know, we'll do from the spoon to the city. We have a bunch of projects of <laughs> different. Yeah, no, I know. It's a, people laugh at it, but yeah, it's true. You know, we have a small projects, big projects, and everything in between, which is great. I think the difference in scale and and the combination of craft between them. Some of them are sort of higher budget. Some of them are low budget. It informs you know every single project. And uh, yeah, you can find us at KohlbergArchitecture.com. Uh, Instagram is Kohlberg Architecture, and our office is in downtown Brooklyn and always open for a visit. Yeah, you definitely won't get bored with uh, the diversity and typology and, and yeah. style and scope. So that's, that's always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So Eugene, uh, today we're talking about banks. Yeah. And you had experience working on those. Can you... Uh, for our listeners, uh, let's say our, our podcast is the thing that we'll use to restart civilization. Uh, what? How would you describe? How would you describe in simple terms for someone that's restarting? What is a bank? 
Well, that is a very, very interesting question because that answer probably changes, let's just say every five years. You know, what a bank used to be even 20 years ago, it's not the same thing as it is today. It's obviously not the same thing it was in the 1920s. It's not the same thing it was in 1800s. So that is something that the banks themselves are trying to redefine and get a competitive edge from a, from a business perspective on each other. And whoever sort of strikes that line on, on what the sort of the zeitgeist is for what a bank is, in their mind is the most successful, right? And then, but it's a hard thing to do for two reasons. One, I mean, architecture is somewhat permanent or construction is somewhat permanent, right? It's not like you're dealing with an ad or, or a piece of digital graphic or something, right? At some, at some point, somebody needs to sign a lease, which is either a five or 10 year lease. Somebody needs to spend time designing it. Somebody needs to spend time building it. So that's the sort of the interesting dichotomy between staying current, for lack of a better word, and having something that's built. You know, and that happens, that's not only in, in, the, in the retail banking world. I mean, that happens in a lot of spaces, but it's very particular in banks because just technologies just evolve so fast and people's understanding of and relationship with money is always ever evolving. Yeah. One of the fascinating things that I find with banks is the the financial sector has its own sort of culture and vibe that they are often going for, but occasionally try to fight <laughs> to to be a little different. And yeah. I feel like you see that in some of the banks today where they're trying to be a little bit more laid back, but at the same time, they're still trying to give this very professional well, uh, and also, image. Yeah. I mean, and to sort of second that point is they are a heavy, heavily, heavily regulated industry. Right. So they have to, at some point, there's guardrails that they have to stay within. Right. And it's just, again, how do you operate within these guardrails and at the same time differentiate yourself from the competition? Yeah. Right. So it's always, it's, you know, it's, it's, again, it's a super interesting proposition. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about sort of how it changes every five years. Are there a few things that come to mind that you would sort of reference as markers of that evolution? Yeah, I mean, I think it probably comes down to people's relationship with money. And then how does that affect where and how they bank? So, for example, in I'm saying a random date, but let's just say in the 20s, right, <laughs> or, or, or just like around the, the depression um, or historically, the architecture of a bank was meant to represent security, something robust about the institution, dependability, and it would be somewhere that you can trust that your money would be safe. And you know, you sort of had the big, you can't, you can't see the expanse of my hands, but you would have the big <laughs> vaults that would be visible. You would have the big atriums. You know, if you, if you go to any, any city that has all banks still going on, you know, you had that that entire thing, which is super, super interesting when there is still a bank in those old locations and it just looks diminutive compared to before. So, so again, I mean, I think it's a relationship, it's people's relationship with money and how do they, how do they feel about that? What's their access like? 
in, you know, what do they use it for, right? I think the advent of the ATM, credit cards, the internet, mobile payment, all affect our relationship with money. How do we use it? Which in turn references how do we interact with a bank, both as an institution and as a space. You know, one of the things that when I was doing retail banking, when I worked at Gensler in New York, and we used to have all sorts of roundtables and discussions and like, what's banking in five years, what's banking in 10 years, and sort of try and be ahead of the curve. One of the things that one of the principals kept talking about, which I remember a little bit, um, I was a kid back then, but he was obviously an adult. It was when ATMs started. And then ATMs was a way of the teller position in a bank was the lowest paying position but in terms of customer interaction and being the face of the bank, these were the people that had the most interactions with the customers, right? And yeah, you know, some of them were good, some of them were bad, some of them could care less. Again, it's the lowest paying position, right? But you're as an institution or as a brand, you're depending on this person to be the face of the brand. Put it on the ATM, and not only do you have extended hours. You know, you give the perception of more control to the customer. You know, one analogy that I use on different things is like the door closed on an elevator. It's like that button never works, but but it's the perceivedness <laughs> of control. You know, and then you sort of take out, you know, so you get the hours, the control, and then you take out that person out of the equation. And if that person was good, there's a little bit of loss there for the brand. But if that person was, you know, bad or can care less, then it's a, it's a win for the bank. So something similar to that, you know, with the internet, I think it's the, sort of the same thing, but it's second generation. And that affects our sort of our relationship and our interaction with money. Now you worked on um, Bank United. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about that project? Yeah, Bank United, we, we worked on, again, while I was at Gensler in their office in New York, and we were tasked with a couple of things. One was to come up with what in retail is called a retail prototype or sort of a concept. And what that is, is that you come up with brand elements, you know, signature materials, signature moves, uh, kind of typical layouts that then you can deploy in different locations. And that's how most of the retail world that, you know, stores that have different locations and so on operate. And retail banking operates the same. So we were tasked with doing that. And then we were also tasked to then implement that prototype in a handful of locations in New York. And one of the sort of the guidelines that we got from the client group was that they didn't, I mean, this is a commercial bank too. If you have a personal checking account, this is not for you. This is for businesses and it's business to business <laughs> transactions, even though they sort of operate very similar. One of the guidelines that we got was like, look, this should not look like every other bank. A couple of people in the ownership group came from the hospitality industry, and they wanted to have some of the aspects of those spaces. So we strived for infusing the branch, which some of that, I mean, I think part of the issue, which actually I, I mentioned a little while ago, part of the issue was that we were going into spaces where there were previous bank locations and in, in other times in history. So we were looking at buildings or spaces within buildings that had tall ceilings, maybe sort of massive columns. 
something that was completely out of scale for what we were talking about. So we had a lot of elements that sort of became signature elements to try and bring that scale down, make it more based on the dimensions of the body. Hey, Demetrius here. As you may know, Spaces is part of Gable Media, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. Gable empowers AE professionals just like you to better serve the world. Now, through the strategic development of a brand new membership platform, we are eliminating the traditional industry boundaries and information bottlenecks that we all experience. But we need your help. Please go to gablemedia.com members and pick your top three initiatives that you believe will have the greatest impact on your growth, including a continuing education program, VIP access to expert forums and private Q&As, community boards, special freebies, and more. Go to gablemedia.com members and let us know what you'd like to see. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect Podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going go to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. I really love the the design on this and and this kind of goes to the earlier part of the conversation of it's very clearly and to your point you can see the bones of a bank it's like right. clearly obvious but also you see this layered in sort of hospitality element like branding elements that are obvious and clear what are the components of a bank that you're typically going to find and the parts that you ended up, you know, sort of running into. Right. So we, so we had, again, on the commercial bank is a, is a little bit different than a, just a straight up retail bank. This work was going on around like 2011, 2012, somewhere like that. So one of the things that we were trying to get into the spaces, it ended up being a little bit too tricky just because it wasn't fully developed, but it was just the technology and kind of digital integration of floor to ceiling screens or stuff like that, right? But 
looking back at it, that was almost good luck because they, you know, sometimes you need to go into a space and not see a moving screen or, or you know, or not be <laughs> yeah. completely, completely oversaturated by information. So that, I think that shortcoming was, was actually great because then we could focus on material scale, you know, layout and so on that, I mean, sometimes using technology as a crutch. And you can see it in some of the banks currently and some of the banks that were built a little after our time with, with Bank United. But that, you know, one of the nice things is that it's not a peaceful place, but it's somewhere where you're not just overloaded with technology. But some of the components that we had, right? So the components of a, of a bank branch, there's usually somewhere that it's a high security area. hundred years ago, you would have the big vault, you know, now that's reduced to a room, high security room, but you know, it's still, still secure. And then right adjacent to that, which has direct access to the vault, you have where the tellers are. And it's always a, a spatial conversation and it's sort of an interactive conversation on how that works between the customer and the employee and what makes the customer comfortable, what makes the employee comfortable, and then what type of regulation, and, you know, and overlap that with the regulations you need to follow. So it becomes a very, very interesting challenge to solve and solve successfully. Because again, at the end of the day, that experience is what they're going to remember about the bank. It's not going to be the nice marble. And it, I mean, hopefully <laughs> they do, but right. It's that, it's that, it's that experience. Like, Hey, the line take a long time. Was I, was everybody that I interacted with as a customer, were they always nice? So that plays a big part. Before we move into the next uh, component, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that, on that exchange with the teller. Uh, because over my lifetime, I've seen the, the bulletproof glass come and go. Uh, right. Do you have any insight into that is, and um, kind of how that evolution has happened? My understanding is that in New York, for example, the NYPD highly, 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 highly suggests you have it. Again, it's the, the sort of the banks trying to get an edge here and there or a distinction here and there. Um, you know, it might depend on the neighborhood. But my understanding is that the police and security agencies definitely encourage it, you know, as an interaction, as a, I mean, I've obviously been to banks and interacted through a BR glass and it's not the nicest experience. Um, <laughs> you know, it probably helps during COVID because you can, you know, they already <laughs> had a, a built-in screen, but I mean, I'm assuming insurance rates and, you know, coverage for anything that happens at a bank probably come into play as well. But it's definitely a, a really, really interesting problem to have to solve spatially, because obviously the the BR layer extends below the glass, right? Yeah. You just don't see it. But yeah, I mean, in terms of an interaction and in terms of of having that customer connection, it's a challenge to do. Yeah. Any other components that that are um, worth noting? Well, yeah. I mean, the, there there's some other kind of typical things. I mean, usually there's there's like an office area, kind of desk scenario, some open offices, some workstations, you know, that area has a conference room attached to it. You know, again, it, it, the footprint and the use of the space has gotten altered a lot with the use of the internet and mobile payments. And, you know, even with COVID, right? Like it, presumably in a conference room, you use it to close 
loans or transactions or, you know, meet with clients. But if that doesn't happen that often, you know, it brings into question how, how that works and the component of it. You know, I think the last and, and sort of most important component of the spatial three-dimensionality of the bank is that moment where you cross in and, and go through the threshold and what do you see, right? A hundred years ago, you would see a, a large atrium, rich materials, so on and so forth. Now it's a little different, right? Because you still want to convey some image of security, some image of sort of grandeur, but also not too much. So you think that they're not stiffing you with fees, like that's where your fees are going, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So you sort of have to be, I mean, again, it's a, you have to be a little bit careful of how much of that do you do. Yeah. Now, what was the most uh, complex part of designing a bank? And maybe it was, uh, there's an exact example within the Bank United. Is it that exchange between the teller and dealing with that bulletproof glass or is it something else? Well, I think that it depends. I mean, I think at, at the end of the day, it depends what the what the sort of the program looks like, right? We were at the same time that we were doing that, we were working on on retail bank branches with PNC. And PNC had a to their credit, they were a sort of industry leader in sustainability. And all of our bank branches were lead platinum. And we had a we had an entire spec and and everything was sort of volume build and you know it was a matter of logistics i mean this is all pre-covid obviously but it's it's you know how logistics lead times you know getting approvals for one thing or the other and then these things get deployed all over the place that was challenging on that aspect so that's that sort of design and construction aspect on the sort of the concept design over at bank united I think was was trying to strike the balance between breaking the mold just enough that we were still within the, the the sort of the regulatory guardrails, but also using the right materials and and having the right kind of architecture that translated the brand values and the objectives. Yeah, you talked a little bit about sort of the regulations that the banking industry is under. Are there special considerations that sort of bleed into design that that you have to be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think there's the short answer is mostly everything does, <laughs> right? Um, like even if you're when you're designing the ATM enclosure, right? There's all sorts of you know regulations for lack of a better word, right? Some of them are code required. Some of them are from an accessibility perspective. Some of them are from a security perspective. So there's a whole ton of things that, that you need to think about and, you know, and it's hard. It's, you know, it's to make it, there, there's a reason why things look like they do, unfortunately. Yeah. And again, it's trying, it's trying to, to just peel away enough of that or question enough of that, that you can say, oh, okay, I understand why this is. And I think this other way is going to fulfill the same requirement. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the things and, and also too, you know, it's like how, Banks, most of the time, when we interact with them as commuters or, or sort of pedestrians, banks are closed. Mm -hmm. They open in the morning, they close early in the afternoon. Most of them are closed on the weekends. So that's another thing to think about too, on if the bank is in an urban fabric, right? What does that closed kind of operation looks like? 
in our case, in the Bank United, we thought about that a lot and tried to make some of the design elements have a different life when the bank was closed. We had these hmm. these um, these aluminum extrusions that were triangle in section, and you know there was a side that was blue, which was their brand color, and a side that was silver and black, and so on. So you know, and then we we sort of had them lit, and we programmed the lighting specifically for at night for it to look different. Not only does the storefront doesn't look dead at night or when the bank is is out, but also if you're using an ATM that's outside or if you have an atrium or a, or a sort of vestibule where the ATMs are, that you as a customer you feel comfortable and you know it doesn't look like a death trap that you can get <laughs> mugged in, which you know which is a reality that you have to deal with, right? So that that was another interesting thing, especially in urban locations. Yeah, you talked about the you know, traditional or, or typical ADA and building code, is there a specific sort of banking code or design guideline that somebody oversees or is it just implied by the client? Yeah, no, they, I mean, you, ha you obviously have your kind of local building code regulation. Yeah. It's like any other project, right? You have to deal with, yeah. with fire safety and egress and so on. Then you have ADA and then the the kind of the layer you know the layers that have to do with the sort of the banking aspect of it come from the institution itself got it so what were some of the trends that that you implemented on bank united and are you aware of any new ones that are sort of being implemented now or on the horizon well i think one of the things that we tried to do with both the architecture and the layout and the selection of materials was to strike that balance between making it um, the sort of the idea of importance, like you walked in into an important space that the previous banks hundred years ago had with the scale. We tried to get it with scale as well, but in a different manner, but also materials. We tried to get some of that hospitality kind of look and feel with with the different material specifications, with some of the furniture specifications, the lighting became an important part. So that's what, that was sort of that universe. Since then, the introduction of technology, which is more, I mean, every year it becomes easier to integrate. So you see that in, in bank branches. And even, even by the time we were done with our designs, you know, you could start seeing just the tech being a little bit more prominent in the locations, but it, it, I think banks are still trying to find a way to, in the experience, you know, in those 15 minutes or in those 20 minutes that you're in the branch to try and differentiate themselves. And we had conversations internally in the office about what is it, right? I mean, in, in domestically, are you trying to recreate a domestic environment in the bank, right? Most of the kind of the financial conversations that happen you know, in the family, right, happen around the kitchen table. Mm. So I remember having conversations like, okay, well, is there a way that we can not recreate it literally, right? But yeah. is there a way that you can just copy that interaction or, or what are the distinct elements of that interaction that we can then take into the bank? From an architectural perspective too, right? Like you can, you know, you see the, the banks less and less and less look like a bank and more and more and more look like, a space of leisure. You got Capital One that has the cafes. You know, at some point there was a bank ING that had cafes. 
you know, you see them more as almost like civic or public spaces. Like ideally there's another use that the bank can attach to. Um, and you're like, oh yeah, you know, while you're kind of hanging out, you can do your banking too. But, you know, obviously COVID and the internet and, and mobile payments and all that have just thrown a wrench on that. So it, it's an interesting, I mean, I wish I was still doing them or had the <laughs> opportunity to do them in the office because it's, it's a super, super interesting problem to solve. Yeah. You mentioned the Capital One. That was one of the more intriguing things that I saw was that sort of cafe kind of style. Right. Uh, I assume, what are your thoughts about that? And I assume there has to be a secure element where you treat the floor as kind of a, you know, retail floor where that you're right. just engaging with people, but you have to do money exchanges back behind somewhere to some extent. Right? Well, and I think, right. And I think that's the, and I think that's the, that's the sort of the interesting boundary, right? Like even when you go to an Apple store and people look at Apple stores, it's just the reference for everything nowadays. Um, <laughs> but when you go to an Apple store and you're trying to, you know, if you want to purchase something, you, you can go to anybody who's got the Apple shirt and they, they're able to check you out just on their phones, right? It's, it's, an, it's an immediate thing. And that's just because there's no real paper money being transacted. You know, if you take that to a branch, that's all fine and good until you have to transact with a dollar bill. And that's where I think that interaction is interesting because it's like, okay, well, do you have the different bankers that are offering you coffee or whatever? You know, do they have a stash of money in their pocket? Like, how does that work? Um, <laughs> You know, or like, are they walking around with like, when you go to a baseball stadium, you get the, you know, the guys walking down the thing with all the popcorn and it's like, <laughs> yeah. so, so, you know, in, in having to, to physically disconnect yourself from that sort of cafe space to somewhere else to do that transaction is it kind of defeats the purpose. So it's, yeah. a, it's a really, really interesting problem, which is super difficult to do. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm excited about it to be able to do it, but if, probably if I get to do it, I'll be hating myself. I'm like, oh man. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a really, really interesting scenario because at some point, you know, there's the argument that at some point the bank branch doesn't exist because everything is virtual and everything is mobile and whatever, but you still have the argument that you still need paper money. Yeah. You know, I think at least in New York, you know, when they've tried to have establishments only accept credit cards or digital wallets and stuff. You know, the city said, no, you know, it's not accessible to everybody, which they have a point, right? So as long as that conversation remains and some people only take cash and some people only have the ability to carry cash, you still are going to have to have some sort of home where cash lives. Yeah. So I imagine the tellers in the cafe situation, like the old arcade guy walking around with the coin. Per, yeah, uh, exactly. Coin, yeah. Coin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Coin <laughs> belt. <laughs> yeah. But it's also, I mean, from, but from an employee perspective too, and I mean, this has nothing to do with architecture, but from an employee perspective, it, you also have to, you know, if I want to work at a bank as a teller, that's also a shifting position right like you don't know what you're going to be doing in two three years yeah. like am i gonna am i gonna be making espressos too as part of my job description <laughs> i don't know yeah. I, you know or does the bank becomes an appendage like a real appendage to something else that you do right i mean you see you see um some bank branches 
be in supermarkets, you see bank branches and other spaces. So maybe the future of banking is just to be to be an appendage to something else. Because at the yeah. end of the day, the, the physical footprint that you need is not that much. And at the end of the day, it's about convenience. If the bank is everywhere, then it's super convenient. And that's one of the ideas of the ATM, right? Like it's, it's everywhere. So before we get out of here, what's one thing that you would want to, um, that you would advise someone that's taking on a bank project, uh, things to look out for or things to make it easier on themselves? I, you know, when I work on projects, whether they're banks or apartment buildings or whatever it is, I would just say, go back to your own experience. It's like, how would you like to interact with a bank? Because at the end of the day, you're a customer too. So what are the things that you would like to see better or different and go with that? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much, Eugene. Um, for our listeners that want to follow along uh, with Kohlberg Architecture, what's the uh, best way to do so? Well, we got KohlbergArchitecture.com. We got Kohlberg Architecture on Instagram, which is a little bit of an unfiltered, unofficial way of us to sharing the work and on different podcasts like yours. All right. Great. Thank you so much again, Eugene. Uh, and thank you to the listeners for listening. We will talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you again to Travel by Design for their support of this episode. Behind the facade of every world-class hotel, there's a story waiting to be heard. Make sure you hear that story by simply scrolling down to our show notes and click the Travel by Design link to listen today. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor 
whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.